Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, it's rightly been said that to give real service, you must add something which cannot be bought or measured with money, and that is sincerity and integrity. My guest today is the diplomat, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, and he is perhaps the personification of real service, a point duly recognized in 2009 by his receipt of the US Presidential Medal of Freedom with the citation that this man has never run from danger. Described by one past president as America's Lawrence of Arabia, he has been US ambassador to Lebanon, Kuwait, Syria, Pakistan, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Little wonder that those who know him describe him as courageous and inspirational, and it is why this edition of Changemakers is the story of what it takes to serve. Ambassador Crocker, Ryan, welcome to Changemakers. Michael, thanks very much. It's a great opportunity. And wonderful to be able to narrate your story. And I'd like to start with your father's influence, um, a career Air, Air Force officer who had some thoughts on the ideals of, of service and what it might mean for you, I believe. Well, my father was a member of that greatest generation, uh, World War II. Uh, he was in the Army Air Corps and he flew um, B-17s out of um, England at that time. And it was, a, of course, a, I'm, I'm always a little careful with the British audience. Uh, you know, we think that we lost a lot and paid a lot in World War II. Well, welcome to Britain. Uh, but but he did. He got through the war, obviously, <clears throat> got out, went back to his lucrative contracting business, and in six months uh, pulled every lever he could to recommission. Um, and it was, it was hard to do in those days uh, as we shed our wartime numbers. But uh, I was born into that Air Force family. He was on active duty for the first 18 years of my life. And um, I, let's just say it's a, a kind of a father and son thing. It, uh, I, I knew what duty was. Yeah, I, I, read, I read here that you said, I learned early that when you are called to serve, you do not say no. I mean, that seems to have been the story of your career ever since. Yeah, I, I, I kind of like that slant on it. Um, but the, the reality is, like most realities, a little more complex. Um, I, I found early on that um, I, I could perform pretty well in uh, crisis conditions. And going to the hard places meant that I didn't have to go to a whole lot of diplomatic cocktail parties or national day receptions or buffet dinners. Um, uh, so it, it, it suited my uh, kind of my inner characteristics as well as, of course, uh, uh, the sense of service that my father felt so strongly about. I mean, for an American diplomat, it seems to me that you've had the ultimate tour of hard places um, in terms of your ambassadorial career. Is it because you're just very good in those tough spots um, as, a, as a US diplomat? Or, or were you actually drawn to the tougher challenges because you didn't like the cocktail party circuit and you wanted to make the difference? Well, it uh, again, I don't want to trivialize my own experience. It, it was about a bit more than avoiding the cocktail parties, I, I suppose. Uh, I, I did discover in the crucible of uh, Beirut, uh, where I was posted as political counselor for three years, 1981 to 84, that saw the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, the bombing of the American embassy in Beirut. Uh, I, I was a survivor of that, the bombing of the Marine barracks. Um, uh, the assassination of a president-elect. Uh, and I, I, I came through that thinking, okay, that was kind of interesting. Where else might it be kind of interesting? 
uh, our embassy was destroyed April 18, 1983. Almost immediately, the uh, British ambassador, backed by uh, his government, offered a space in his embassy, which we took. And of course, in that process, put uh, the British flag and the British embassy square in the middle of harm's way. No second thoughts, no second guessing. He just did it. And <clears throat> those of us who were there at the time uh, will never forget that. Mm. I mean, it strikes me that there is a there must be a lot of camaraderie in 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 this situation. But it also seems to me in the in, in the occasions where we've spoken is that despite having gone through some terrible situations, you know, President George W. Bush in his Presidential Medal of Freedom citation spoke about you repeatedly taking on the most challenging assignments and never running from danger. It strikes me, though, that some people might become quite pessimistic, might see the worst in human nature in terms of having gone through so many terrible situations. But it strikes me that there is a very optimistic and positive personality at play here. Is that a fair assessment? And if so, how do you keep that going? Well, I think sometimes it's just a, a fluke of nature, just how your genetic makeup um, compels your, uh, your, your, your life. Um, yeah, I, I am, I'm not an optimist. I tend to say I'm a realist, but I'm also a positivist. Uh, you know, no matter how bad it is, you can have a plan. Um, you can you can get through the darkest days. And again, I take a certain amount of inspiration, as so many millions of people have done over the years, from Winston Churchill himself. You know, it. Uh, that's my earlier comment. Well, if you thought the early years of um, our involvement, 41-42, were tough, as they were on our 8th Air Force, uh, well, try 1940. And the never give up, never surrender resilience. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Just, uh, uh, you know, I have a, a zillion little cliches to describe life and its <laughs> uh, and its meaning. One of them is um, perseverance doesn't require hope. You, you can persevere in the most arduous of circumstances without needing to, to believe that suddenly it's all going to shift for the better. The converse is not true. Hope does require perseverance. If you give up when it's hopeless, then you've given up. Never do it. I mean, it, it strikes me that, that 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 point about service requiring that resilience is a very important lesson from you because I was reading a Washington Post profile where it said that you believe that the Iraq war was, was folly, um, but you chose to serve to help undo the problems that actually that actually service also means about the strength to go on, even if you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, is, is that how you see it? Uh, in, in part, Michael. But th there's another, I think, more fundamental question. So I think the war is folly, and now we're in it. So I can opt to um, stay out. I don't have to go. But then if, if I take my own cars off the table... The taxpayers' money that allowed me to learn Arabic, the familiarity I had with the Middle East and with Iraq. I, I was um, a relatively junior officer there, 1978 to 1980, when Saddam came formally to power. I was a weapons inspector in the 90s, briefly. 
So who who else is going to come in? What have I taken off the table here? I, I owe it to the taxpayers. I owe it to my country. You know, uh, again, as my father was so fond of saying, uh, there's only one correct answer. But but a lot of people would say, why do you owe it? I mean, there's a, a journalist, Elliot Cohen, who wrote that, you know, you are an inspiration for people about the nobility of diplomatic service because you gave so much that you gave so much of your energy. You were in danger in harm's way. It cost you in health terms and so much that you gave in the pursuit of public service. That that strikes me as an exceptional quality in terms of the why and in terms of the how you summoned up the energy to do it. What would be your own observations? It's a great question, actually. You, you have to find a way again, in the most arduous of circumstances, have to find a way to level yourself out, get a few extra hours of sleep. Overall, I, I think one of the most important characteristics of, uh, for leaders in tough places uh, is a sense of humor. You know, have some perspective and never forget that it's not you you're leading, it's those behind you. Uh, you, have ab- you owe it to them you owe it to your country, you owe it to yourself uh, uh, to help them get through this because they will help you get through this. Focusing on others rather than oneself and, and how, um, how you can manage all of that, I think is very important. I hear running is a big part of your life. Certainly some of your colleagues say they can tell what you're thinking by the amount you're running. Yeah, yeah. Well, you uh, uh, earlier interviewed another great American, a great leader and a great runner, uh, Dave Petraeus, my, my old battle buddy from... Yes, I was, I was wondering, did you run together? Yeah, we did. Uh, uh, his main base was out at um, near the near the Baghdad airport. And once a week on Sundays, I would helicopter out there. And uh, we would take a, a fairly bracing 10-kilometer run. Not a huge distance, but it gets your attention. And we would use that time uh, to talk through issues. And we would... Um, we did it uh, several times before some important congressional testimony, and we kind of murderboard each other, just asking all the hard questions we could think of. I feel like I've had a major breakthrough because uh, David Frost famously asked Tony Blair um, about George W. Bush, did they pray together? Now I can ask Ambassador Ryan Crocker and General David Petraeus, did they run together? And know that the answer to that question is yes, they did, uh, which is, uh, it, it, it said here that um, that you got through many of your tough assignments by by that physicality. I mean, is, is that is that part of what actually what keeps the state of mind as it is, do you think? Well, I think it's all part of it. You know, physical exercise is uh, perhaps primarily of mental benefit. Uh, it, uh, it just centers you. It um, has an almost chemical effect. Sometimes that can lead to certain errors of judgment. Um, I, uh, for many years, I was the uh, record holder among Americans for the Beirut Marathon. Well, that's because there weren't very many Americans who ran the Beirut Marathon. And after the embassy blew up, there were even fewer. Uh, but the, that marathon that I ran in Beirut was on April 17, 1983. The next day, the embassy blew up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just wonder him, because obviously, you know, you mentioned the 83 terrorist attack on, on the embassy in 1998 as ambassador to Syria. You witnessed, you know, very angry crowds plunder your residence i mean many things where 
you must have have faced fear directly where the adrenaline must have been pumping when you, when you look back at it from the relative safety of home these days in terms of the sort of person that those consistent experiences always being in locations where you know danger was not too far away for a frontline american diplomat what what was the effect on that in terms of your personality do you think well again i think so much i got credit for is in no way to my credit it's just kind of maybe the way i'm wired uh, one of the reasons i um, was always ready to be in a tough situation is that things things become very clear. It's as though time slows down and all those extraneous issues just uh, move away until you're just focused laser-like on what you need to do at a critical moment. Uh, and again, I'd, I'd like to say that I studied hard on that in school and that the Foreign Service taught me all of that. I think it's, again, just just the way you're wired. Mm. I mean, looking at your story, um, it seems to me that bridge, bridge building um, is an important um, part, bridge building between people, between opponents. I mean, do, do you do you consider yourself a, a pragmatist, Ryan, in terms of your outlook in life? Is, is that the role of a, of a diplomat? Oh, Michael, yes, very much. Uh, it's... Uh, the uh, ivory towers of academia, that's all important and stuff in the world of pure theory. Uh, but the world I chose to serve in um, isn't really constituted in that manner. So um, you, you have to be ready. You, you just um, have got to be ready for whatever comes next. I, I'm fond of saying that um, in, in our country, when there's some foreign policy, national security uh, setback that uh, <clears throat> the intelligence was wrong, that uh, we got blindsided on this because the intelligence was wrong. It was a failure of intelligence. Sometimes that happens. Mainly, it's a failure of imagination, though. So when I ran the Beirut Marathon in April 17, there was no way I could imagine that the embassy would blow up the next day. But, you know, I should have because the... Um, the Iraqi embassy in Beirut was blown up uh, in December of 1981 in the Iran-Iraq war. But, but I suppose nobody can blame you for for not being hopeful that it wouldn't happen to you, I suppose. Do you think you're being overly hard on yourself? No, it wasn't uh, that I was hopeful it wouldn't happen to us. It's that I didn't realize, I didn't imagine that such a thing could happen to us. And again, you, you just, uh, hindsight is always twenty twenty. but I, that was a watershed moment for me. What am I not thinking about? Right. Well, well, let's look at imagination and let's look at something new to think about because we are now on the back of a US election, heavily contested as a result, but it looks like we do have a voter's decision in, in President-elect Joe Biden. Imagine that future for us. You, you've worked with him in the past. What, what, what is your sense of the world as we move maybe out of 2020 and into 2021 in terms of the world as you see it um, and indeed the difference that this, that this new style of president might make? Joe Biden is, of course, very much a known quantity. He's, he's been in public life uh, for almost half a century uh, after his uh, election to the Senate way back in 72. 
so, so we know him, and I feel I know him personally, both from the time he was uh, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and later as, uh, as vice president of the United States. He is a committed internationalist. He is a believer in a post-World War II global order in which the United States leads. It doesn't dominate, but it leads. So, and he's a known quantity in the rest of the world for the same reasons. That's the good news. Uh, the bad news is, with a snap of the fingers, we're not going to return to that era of unchallenged U.S. leadership globally. We've taken a huge step back under the Trump administration, but that actually that withdrawal, that disengagement, actually started with President Obama, and it reflects a sense by two very different presidents of the mood in American society. No, no more wars. So it's gonna we're not going to be what we were, at least not for some time to come. We'll come on to the um, President Trump legacy in a minute, but but in terms of President-elect Biden, give us a perspective of what he's like as as a person in terms of, obviously, many of us have grown up with him, remembering him as a fairly avuncular vice president um, alongside Barack Obama. I think, you know, the story is being um, uh, told anew, I guess, in terms of what he may be like as President Biden. You, you've worked with him. Give us your, your perspective on him as, as a human being. Well, there is no more decent person at the senior levels of, of American politics than, um, than Joe Biden. Uh, and that counts. It really does. Uh, he cares about others. Uh, he is very much open, ensuring that he hears the concerns of others. Uh, uh, again, he is not an ideologue. He is not doctrinaire. He is highly practical, but also highly aware that um, at, at the end of the day, nationally and internationally, it's about people. Um, and uh, what can the U.S. as a leader do to make things better for people at home and at abroad? So it's a very humanistic uh, approach that uh, that he has taken. And certainly in my own case, uh, Again, we'd known each other since um, the 1980s. He was, when I opened our embassy in Kabul, he was my first congressional visitor. So so we knew each other. I was reading. He liked to get out to visit you, I heard. Well, this is so important uh, for someone who led the Foreign Relations Committee for many years uh, and who is now president of the United States. Uh, he does not derive his um, information and make his decisions based solely on what he hears inside the Beltway. He will go to those tough places under tough circumstances to get his own appreciation of a situation. And in Kabul, again, uh, beginning of 2002, Iraq, where he came out just before Dave Petraeus and I had this marathon testimony in Washington to get his own perspective. Um, and anytime, I, I was a field guy my whole career. I mean, that's, I don't do Washington. I, I, do, <laughs> I do those other hard places. Uh, it's invaluable to have a leader that considers that important. We'll come out and visit. We'll ask a lot of questions and um, uh, then take all of that back home to inform his judgments. Apparently, Mrs. Thatcher's favorite quote was that time spent on reconnaissance is, is rarely wasted. Is, is that, a, is that, is that, 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 I guess, is what, what, you, what you're observing? Just, just something, an observation, if I may. You know, a diplomat's job is to is to bring people together. It, it, it sort of strikes us sort of, you know, over here in the UK that, you know, job number one um, right now is a highly divided electorate. I mean, is it even realistic 
to consider that the states can be brought back together as a as a United States? I, I think it is. And I think Joe Biden is the one person right now who could do it because that's what he's been about his entire political career. Um, finding consensus, uh, finding accommodation, understanding what the other party wants and why she wants it. Uh, uh, that's, that's always motivated him. And you'll see those qualities brought to play now. That said, the rifts are very dangerous and they're very deep. And this is going to be very hard. And here too, though, I think he can uh, take counsel with another president who faced great divisions, not as great as this, but great. And that would have been George H.W. Bush, uh, who um, came to office uh, following Ronald Reagan at a time when the, the fissures in American society were as great as they had ever been up to that point. Um, he had James Baker as Secretary of State. So what was James Baker's first mission as Secretary of State? Well, it wasn't to NATO. Uh, it wasn't to the Middle East. It was to Capitol Hill, where he spent hours and hours meeting primarily with the Democratic leadership in Congress uh, to try to smooth over the divisions in our society uh, that had occurred under Reagan, primarily in Latin America. This was the time of the Iran-Contras, uh, uh, Iran-Gate, the illegal transfer of weapons. Uh, it was a rough time. Uh, Baker worked that for months, and it paid off. This is harder now, but it's the same dynamic. So he's going to have to make his alliances and use the dignity of office, I guess, to to achieve that. I mean, if you, turning now with your kind of like, I guess, historian's eye, I mean, if you were to have an early view on the, on the President Trump legacy in terms of what course or, or I guess what America will take out of that and what the world might take out of that um, in the future. What, what's your take? Well, uh, again, looking back at history is, I think, always a wise thing to do. And uh, I certainly have tried to do that to absorb what lessons the past have for the present. That isn't always easy. Uh, and sometimes you can get it very wrong. History teaches bad lessons as well as good if you uh, don't quite understand the context properly. Um, it does give me a chance to, you said you were going to ask me about my favorite books. So by God, I was ready and you haven't asked, but. Um, <laughs> I've still got a bit of the interview left yet, right? Tell us about that as well. <laughs> well, yeah, this is following a conversation that you and I had on um, Ian Forster's magnificent work, The General. The General, yeah, wonderful read. So, so here's my copy of The General. Now, I know we're on radio and you can't see it, uh, but it's a small blue hardback, um, handbound in Cairo. Uh, about um, 1989. It was it was the old Penguin paperback edition. I think not the first printing, which was 1936, but pre-war in any case. Boy, there is a lesson on how not to lead. Uh, I, I just think I found that fabulously important. And um, uh, again, uh, your your earlier references to it when we were talking got me to down there to the library, my own library, and I pulled it out and and rereading it again for the lessons it holds. It, it's a wonderful book. I mean, and it, and it tells that generation of leadership in the First World War where I guess the sanctity of human life was not necessarily um, at the heart of, of many, many good decisions. But let's just move forward to a, I guess, a new chapter 
um, in history. Um, and in terms, I guess, the lessons that your diplomatic chapter sort of leads you to consider for the what might happen next. I mean, it's the it's the essential question that historians always love um, looking at in terms of where might all this be leading us to in terms of the story of the human experience. I suppose my, my final couple of questions, I suppose one is about the world as you see it um, in, in terms of its challenges and opportunities ahead. And the second is, I guess, the story in terms of what, what you've learned from your career let's let's just let's sort of um and would you do it maybe differently i don't know let's start this in terms of your view of the world ahead how do you feel about it how 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 where are we at in your in your view i i think uh, as someone who has studied history we are at a critical point in this country and and globally um is the post-world war ii era of American ascendancy, not domination, just ascendancy, is it well and truly over? Um, and if it is, what does that mean? Uh, well, uh, as, I, as I noted earlier, uh, this U.S. disengagement didn't start with Trump. I mean, he put it on steroids, but, but it started with President Obama. So if we're not going to do that any longer, then what? And what I greatly fear is that we are going to default to uh, some kind of balance of power system, that the, the exact shapes of which I can't begin to predict, but broadly speaking, a balance of power system. So what's wrong with that? Um, well, two world wars are what's wrong with that. Uh, balance of power. Does, does that mean you always have to have a lead player then in your view? Do you have to have the world's policeman? Not necessarily. I, I think it does require um, uh, an effort by global power or powers um, to to understand that what we don't want to get back to uh, is is that kind of tangled system that um, again produced World War One and less than two decades later World War Two. Uh, so does it mean you know that we dominate? No, it doesn't. And I, I think the fear I have, uh, the relief I have with Joe Biden is. That is his worldview, broadly speaking. Not that we dictate, dominate, or order, uh, but that we are perhaps the first among equals in looking at global threats and global responses. Hmm. So, so does that mean a slightly more humble America in the world, do you think? Well, I, I think it does. And that, that is also something I think that uh, the president-elect brings to the table. Uh, you, can, you can sometimes miss his inherent, I think, humility, um, because let's face it, he is a man of a few thousand words. Uh, you know, you're, <laughs> uh, that's great. <laughs> you know, you're going to get the uh, the unedited version uh, in terms of length, if not substance. Uh, but but the truth is, uh, I have always found him to to be well grounded. Uh, well-situated and very realistic about what he knows and doesn't know, but also about what makes sense for America as policy. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time for a few thousand words, just just time for a, a last question, if I may. But I mean, we started this, this question, or sorry, started this interview um, with the observation that your father instilled in you an attitude about when you're called to serve, you do not say no. If I could wave a magic wand and, and give you your future again, but from today, 
do you think you would still have the same sense of becoming, I guess, a public servant to serve as a diplomat? Or do you think you might find a way of doing it differently? I mean, you've gone on to academia. Do you think there might be a different Ryan Crocker emerging into 2020? Or do you think you would still be traveling down that same path of public service? Uh, again, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think I would have found a way to serve no matter what. Um, and here again, the, the role of chance or luck in life is huge. In my particular case, I sat for my foreign service oral examinations just as I was graduating college. Um, didn't expect I would actually get in. So I had all kinds of other um, alternative lives out there. They all involved um, the international arena. And had the had I not gotten into the Foreign Service, I, I think it would have been most likely that I would have been a Marine, Marine Corps officer. That was a time of rebellion, the late, the early 70s, late 60s. I was going to rebel against my father um, and show him that his past is indeed past. So he was a career Air Force officer. I, I would be a career Marine Corps officer, and that'll show him. And I know you you were honored by the U.S. Marines, but I, I, I wish we had so much more time for this interview, Ryan. But regrettably, I'm going to have to bring um, this episode to a close. So my thanks um, to my guest, Ambassador Ryan Crocker. And I really do think the story of what it means to serve. Um, I, I love that phrase you just said there at the end, that you would have found a way to serve no matter what. And if that's not food for thought, I don't know what is. So do join me next time on The Changemakers.